Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, welcome back uh, to the podcast, and uh, we're excited to be getting into um, a, a challenging section of the Old Testament to summarize because we've been kind of following the historical books along up to this point. And then we kind of get to a point after the divided kingdom where the the history books are going to kind of skip. Like after you get Kings and Chronicles, you're going to suddenly pick up in like Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther and be like, wait a minute, there, there's some stuff that happened in between here that we don't have like a play-by-play historical book for. But what ends up happening is there are some of the prophets that we've been looking at starting in our last episode that have these narrative sections kind of built in. And so I think growing up when I was reading the Bible, this is where, like after the divided kingdom, things got really fuzzy. Mm -hmm. And looking back, I think that's one of the reasons that it was confusing to me is because there wasn't a like first and second captivity historical book. But these things are built into the books of Mm -hmm. Daniel Ezekiel and Jeremiah primarily. Yeah. And when we read books, we expect to read them chronologically, and mm-hmm. the Bible's not broken up that way. And I think there's very wise reasons as to why that is. You can actually purchase um, chronological Bibles that will break mm-hmm. it up like that, or you can even get online and find chronological Bible reading plans that can be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's the other reason why we sometimes don't always understand why this section is here. The other thing that makes this time in Israel's history just hard for us to kind of consume as readers. It is a large amount of biblical text. I mean, we're going to be looking at uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah today. Ezekiel is 48 chapters. Jeremiah is 52 chapters. And I realize chapters and verses are man-made, but it still gives you an idea of how much text we're talking about here Mm -hmm. um, in the days of of these guys. And so last we left off, um, we were looking at what we were calling the divided kingdom, which was when Ten of the tribes went to the north, and they were all doing their own thing. And then, of course, Judah was there in the south. And that was the divided kingdom. They all had different lines and kings. Those in the south, the southern kingdom, they all ran through the line of King David, mm-hmm. whereas the northern tribe, the, the, the Israel, as we called them, they all did, had all kinds of different lines. I mean, you would sometimes see succession in the kingship, and then that would quickly stop, and someone else would get in, and they were kind of stumbling all over themselves until it came to an abrupt halt whenever they went into Assyrian captivity. Right, and that was about 722, 721. So, something like that. And around that time, Judah themselves were also in danger of going into Assyrian captivity, but they ended up repenting, and they ended up turning back to God, and God relents, and the Assyrians were right there ready to take them, but God sends them on their way. Well, today we pick up in a time where uh, Judah will, will yet again disappoint God and fail, and as God had promised when they took the land so many years ago, that he's going to kick them out if they're not faithful. And so that is what today's episode about is, is about the Babylonian captivity, when the Babylonians will come in in three waves and deport all of the Israelites, or a good majority of them, rather, to the lands of Babylon. Mm-hmm. And, and in, the bi- in the bigger biblical story, this is one of the most discouraging things that could happen. Because, I mean, going all the way back to Abraham, we had these promises that God made. And some of those promises revolved around the physical nation that would come from Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. 
I'm going to give you a land that I'm going to show you. And then in your family, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And of course, that third promise, you know, we're still waiting on at this point that has not happened yet. But the first two promises, God kept. Uh, he multiplied them in Egypt. And so they're this great nation, thousands of people. And then the second promise he kept during the days of Joshua, uh, where they went into the land and were given this place to live, houses they didn't build, vineyards they didn't plant. They were blessed by God. And so the the history has kind of like, okay, like we got those two in place. We're still waiting on some more promises to be fulfilled. But during the captivity, it's going to look like God's promises are being reversed. And maybe he's just like, okay, I'm done with this whole Abraham's family thing. And thank, thank God that's not going to be the case. But when we get to the time of captivity, it's going to be a reversal of those things. The people are going to be decimated. They're not going to be this big nation. Um, I mean, I guess they were never huge to begin with, but they're going to be just a fraction numerically of what they were. And they're taken out of the land. They're, they're kicked out, which I appreciate you bringing up because like, if you go back to uh, Leviticus at the end of Leviticus and at the end of Deuteronomy in particular, mm-hmm. the blessings and curses, God told them hundreds of years before all this happened, if you do not keep my covenant, you're going to be kicked out of the land. Just like I kicked out the Canaanites before you, I'm going to kick you out as well. And we also just see the impartiality of God in mm-hmm. all of this. That yeah. like when Joshua came in and drove out the nations, well, now Israel's become as bad or worse than those nations, and God is going to do that. But what we're also going to see is that this is all part of the plan. If you were an Israelite during the time of captivity, it would have felt so disruptive, so like, what has happened? Like, where is God? What's going on? But one of the things that's going to happen is during the time of these prophets, when, in particular in Jeremiah, we'll talk about in just a minute, he's going to say, hey, 70 years. It's going to be a generation of time. But you're going to come back. God's still in control. And so during this time of upheaval, where it looks like God's promises have failed, the prophets are going to be a stabilizing message of, hey, it's not okay what you guys have been doing. God is judging you for what you've been doing. But God is going to be faithful to his promises. This is not the end of the road. He's not given up on Abraham and David and the promises to them. And this is a limited time thing, and you're going to come back from this. So that's kind of going into the captivity mm-hmm. gives us kind of, all right, it's going to be okay. But boy, it sure doesn't feel like it's going to be okay yep. when you're in the trenches and putting yourself in the shoes of these people. So that really well leads us into the first deportation to Babylon. And uh, that's going to take place in, what is it, five, uh, 605, excuse me, 605 B.C. So we know these dates, and these are real places, real times. Yeah, and, and this is right after uh, Assyria falls to Babylon. Right. And again, you can go back and look up historically when these things happened. But once Babylon takes over Assyria... They just keep right plowing on down to mm-hmm. Judah. Right. And that's where we're going to get this first wave of captivity. And I think uh, one of the things I, I didn't really always think about when I was growing up hearing these stories, specifically as we get into the story of Daniel here, is like, why why are they, like, kidnapping the people? Like, why are they taking them out of the land? Why are they taking some of these young men to do this? And uh, really what they're doing is trying to get them to assimilate. They're, they're taking these young men out of these foreign lands to try and make them into Babylonians and to mm-hmm. get them to assimilate into the new culture that they've just been taken over by. It's like empire-building strategy. Exactly. And, and different 
empires did it different ways, but with Babylon, it's like, okay, you're going to come here, you're going to learn the language, you're going to learn our literature, you're going to become one of us, and so we'll grow by forcing nations to assimilate. Exactly. That's that's exactly the case. And so the book of Daniel, um, and I'm partial to this book, that's my middle name, this is exactly what happens to four young men um, in the days of, of Daniel. And those young men, uh, their Hebrew names in Daniel 1 verse 6 uh, says the sons of Judah, there were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Mm-hmm. But as soon as they get into Babylon, they get renamed. Daniel is assigned the name of Belt, uh, Belteshazzar. Hananiah is named Shadrach. Mishael is named Meshach. And Azariah is named Abednego. And so they're renamed all together just to give you an idea of how they're trying to get them to change all together mm-hmm. as it is. That's right. There's this mounting pressure. And one of the things is change your name. Uh, and th- it's interesting when you look at the Hebrew names, all of them are giving praise to Yahweh, to God, the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. And their Babylonian names are giving praise to these other Babylonian gods. Right. Um, which is kind of interesting that through the rest of the book, Daniel is still kind of called Daniel. Um, but Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are called by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now we see all of them have good character. Mm-hmm. None of them in their hearts have changed. Uh, to bow to the gods of Babylon. But it is interesting just kind of that the way we remember them usually when you read through the book of Daniel, you know Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah. But it's helpful to remember their original names in chapter 1. And so, but they were changing more than just their names. Um, they started to ask them to do things that would go directly against what Yahweh would expect them to do. And so going back to Daniel uh, 1 and verse 4, uh, talking about these young men, they would be used in whom there was no defect, they were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter into the king's personal service. And so not only have they changed their names, but they're changing what they're consuming as far as education goes, and not only that, but what they're eating. And one of the things we know about the Jewish people is that there were very strict food laws that they were to adhere to. And so it's no surprise one of the first problems that arises in the book of Daniel is that these young Jewish boys are not going to eat the things that the king wants them to eat. Yeah. I love Daniel 1 verse 8 where it says, But Daniel resolved or some translations say he made up his mind right. that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And so begins a series of narrative accounts in the first six chapters of Daniel. Um, Daniel 1 through 6 is a lot more famous stories, I guess, than what happens in the back half of Daniel. But really in a lot of these stories, especially Daniel 1, um, Daniel 3, and Daniel 6, there are stories of intense pressure to conform to the worldly empire of Babylon. And we see the reaction. In Daniel 1, they respectfully uh, resist and say, we're not going to do this. Please test us for 10 days. And the Lord takes care of them, blesses them, and brings them through that. And actually, they end up being promoted Mm -hmm. and exalted because of this. In Daniel 3, you have the famous story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being pressured to bow down to an enormous golden idol that the king has set up, and they will not do it, and they're thrown into 
a furnace of fire where they should have died. The people who threw them in died, but they were spared and taken care of. And that's really parallel to Daniel chapter 6, which is fast-forwarding toward the end of Daniel's life. Again, we just get the highlight reel in these chapters um, of Daniel when he's thrown into a den of lions for refusing to pray to the king, to mm-hmm. basically to, to the deity, you know, was sometimes wrapped up in the kingship of Babylon. And he says, no, I'm only going to pray to Jehovah. I'm only going to pray to Yahweh. And so he's thrown into this den of lions. And in each case, God preserves his people who are faithful to him. And each of these stories show us the backbone of faith when you're in a foreign land and how God takes care of his people even when they're away from the land of promise, even when they're not surrounded by people trying to serve the Lord. Um, there's just so many good lessons for us yeah, exactly. as we look at the strength of the faith of Daniel uh, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. I mean, wow. Living in captivity, but being devoted to the Lord. Even when everyone else is bowing down, they stand up. And uh, yes, there it's it's hard um, when there is only four of you. But I, I do just want to point out how cool is it that they stuck together. Yes, it's much harder to do it alone. But how encouraging is it that they knew one another and they all stuck to their want and desire to serve the Lord. And so may we have friends like like these men um, that want to serve God and that they're going to hold me to that. And we need to surround ourselves with, with Christians and other people who love the Lord as much as we do. Mm-hmm. And so that brings us into 7 through 12, the, the rest of the book of Daniel. We call it a major prophet, but it, it's, a, it's, it's only 12 chapters. But man, 7 through 12, it really takes a shift out of narrative, like it almost feels like we're reading out of the books of the Kings or Chronicles, into just straight-up prophecy and some things that are hard to understand and things that we don't always understand. And things that are hard for Daniel to yeah, understand, yeah, notably. There's exactly. several times in here where Daniel's like, what just happened? <laughs> like, I don't understand this. And he feels sick. And we realize, again, uh, we mentioned this, I think, a little bit previously with the prophets, is they did not always no. understand what it was that God was showing to them. And Daniel, actually, at the end of the book, is going to be told, hey, seal this stuff up. It's not for you. It's not for this time. It's being recorded now so that they'll know that's from God because it's going to have a lot to do with the future. But Daniel's not given a detailed explanation of what all of this means. And so we get to the back half of Daniel, and there's these crazy pictures of animals and they represent nations. Some of the groundwork for this is laid back in Daniel chapter 2 when King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a statue that with four parts to it, and Daniel is given the interpretation to that dream. And it's like, hey, these are nations. Like, God's in control of history. And look at the way God has laid out the empires of the world before they even rise up. He knows what's going to happen in world history and with specific rulers And so even in the first half of Daniel, there are – the groundwork is laid about who God is. And in particular, Daniel 4 and Daniel 5 are really more about the Babylonian kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, and their pride and God humbling them personally. Uh, Particularly Nebuchadnezzar is a fascinating story in chapter 4. But all of this is looking at the theme of God ruling the nations. 
The Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he will, is one of the things that's said several times in the book of Daniel. Mm -hmm. And so this back half of Daniel, that maybe we're not as familiar with, don't read as much, is just a a, a deep dive into just how in control God is among the nations. Now, the images shift. It's not a statue anymore. It's these different animals that represent kingdoms. And then there's like the scene kind of changes and there's different animals that's like zooming in on the time of the Greek empire. Actually, Alexander the Great is in there. He's not by name, but you line up what's happening in the visions with actual world history and you're like, oh, dude, like this goat is Alexander the Great. Like this Mm. is really cool and really powerful history, really powerful prophecy that Daniel was given that when you start to line it up, you're like, this has to be from God. This is amazing. And it's, it's no surprise that these foreign nations in chapter 7 are described as like these beasts. They're, they're kind of scary images that are given, but I just want to read kind of what it ends about those beasts with. Um, it says, this is Daniel 7 and verse 12, As for the uh, rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and every man of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so although there's these pictures of these scary beasts, Daniel says they're going to come to an end, and there's going to be one that comes on, on these clouds of heaven, the Ancient of Days, he is going to set up and establish a kingdom for himself. And so that just anticipates the reader to say, well, who is that? Who, Who's the Son of Man? Exactly. Who is the Son of Man? And as we've already been talking about a lot of the New Testament in our previous seasons, Jesus, yes, he's the Son of God, but what does he also call himself? The Son of Man. Um, Jesus is the one that is going to come and say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, Jesus is the one that this is all talking about and ultimately pointing to. And I don't believe Daniel understood that. I don't think he knew all that. He has questions about that himself. But um, as to this kingdom, um, he'll say a little bit later as he goes to interpret this, he says, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Whatever kingdom is to come, it's not like the ones that are here. It's going to be an everlasting one. It's going to be a dominating one. And as we see in the New Testament, even the Jews in that day thought it was going to be earthly, but Jesus said, no, 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 you're still missing the point. It's eternal. It's better than any kingdom that's ever been here. Yeah. And so the book of Daniel is going to be very influential. One, in that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man a lot, which is very likely a reference to Daniel 7, like you just mentioned. But when we get to the New Testament, and particularly the book of Revelation, it's going to just kind of pick up where Daniel left off and use some of the very same images of the different kinds of animals that we saw in the book of Daniel. And one of the reasons that people, I think, find Revelation so hard and just go all different directions with it is there's not always a familiarity mm-hmm. with these sections of the prophets that are challenging to read uh, when you're initially picking them up. But with Daniel in particular, if you get a grasp on, oh, okay, this is the prophetic language of Daniel. This is the kind of thing that God's talking about with these images and these beasts and heads and things. 
And so when you pick up Revelation, you're like, wait a minute, like, I've heard this kind of language before. This is just like a remix of what you got in the book of Daniel and also in Ezekiel and Zechariah and several of the other prophets that we'll talk about. But there's such value in studying these books because it will really help us when we get to the New Testament and understand the nature of God and the kingdom that he's bringing and of just prophetic language. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Daniel is a, a really good book to stew in before you study Revelation and try to understand some of those things in the New Testament. Yep. Amen. So that brings us into the second wave of deportation to Babylon, and uh, that would have been right around uh, 598 B.C. And this is where the timing of Ezekiel takes place. Uh, Ezekiel himself is taken off into Babylonian captivity. Um, Ezekiel is himself, of the prophets we have, a good bit of information is given about him and kind of what his background is and who he would have been. Um, Ezekiel is called a priest um, in Ezekiel 1 and verse 3. And you can just imagine how much anticipation he would have had as a young boy leading up to his adulthood years so that he can serve as a priest and he can serve in the temple. But as we read in Ezekiel 1 and verse 30, uh, excuse me, Ezekiel 1 and verse 1, it says, Now it came about in the 30th year on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I, Ezekiel, was by the river Kibar among the exiles, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. Uh, it starts off talking about this 30th year. I, I personally take that to be the 30th year of Ezekiel's life. Probably so, um, yeah. And the year 30, he would have started exactly. to serve as a priest. And so can you imagine how discouraging it would have been to, to you were going to serve as a priest, but now you've been taken all the way to Babylon and you can no longer do that. The, the, the temple's not there. But God has a different plan for Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. He's not called as a priest, but he'll be called as a prophet um, to prophesy to this stubborn group of people um, to turn back to Yahweh, to, to look back to him and stop blaming other people or other things for the sins that they have committed. Yeah. So what's going to be kind of interesting about, again, the way we're reading these different books together is Daniel, the narrative of Daniel really takes place kind of up in the courts, in the government of Babylon. Um, Daniel is not so much among God's people. He and his friends are standing up kind of by themselves. Right. And because and, they were selected. They right. were selected to go yep. there. And so they were, they're kind of, so there's narrative happening among the kings of Babylon. God's in control there. Ezekiel, we find him here by the river among the exiles. So Ezekiel's storyline is going to take us, we're still in Babylon for pretty much the whole book of Ezekiel, but we're finding out what's happening among the people who were taken into captivity and like what life was like for them. And, uh, you know, just little snippets of those things. But what a hard time Ezekiel had as a prophet among God's people. You'd think now that they've been kicked out of the land, they're going to wise up. Unfortunately for a lot of them, no. They're still clinging to false hopes. There's still false prophets among the people. And there's a lot of discussion about, well, what's going to happen to Jerusalem? Uh, you know, this is second wave. Jerusalem hasn't been destroyed yet. And kind of the first half of Ezekiel's prophecy, chapters 1 through 32, deal a lot with Ezekiel prophesying about, no, Jerusalem's going to fall. Don't hold out hope that we're just here for a few, ye- couple years and we're going back. We are here because of our sins and God is going to punish us. And you need to understand that it's your fault that you've landed in captivity. Ezekiel 18 is a particularly interesting... Fun little proverb that people were saying, wasn't there? Yeah, there was a proverb going around. Oh, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, 
but the children's teeth are set on edge. It's not our fault we're here. We're here for the sins of our fathers, but we're kind of just suffering because of what they did. We have a bad taste in our mouth because of what they ate is is what that parable means. And God in Ezekiel 18 lays out in no uncertain terms, the soul that sin shall die. Yeah. You're not, in this case, you're not suffering because of what your fathers did. You are suffering because of what you personally have done. And God holds every generation accountable for their own sin. What's really cool, we'll just grab two verses out of Ezekiel 18, um, verse 24 and 25. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? All his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered for his treachery which he has committed and his sin which he has committed for them he will die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not right? Is it not your ways that are not right? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies because of it for his iniquity which he has committed, he will die. God just lines them up and says, it's not your rule book. You're, you don't get to make the decisions here. I do. <laughs> and the people have gotten into the, the bad habit of blaming other people for their sin. And Stephen, man, is, is that not exactly the bad habit we get into as mm-hmm. well? We need Ezekiel 18 to remind us our sin is our own fault. Stop trying to blame it on someone else. Own up to it. Because one of the things God will say over and over again in this section is that the man who recognizes his transgressions and will confess it and will admit that he did it, he will not die. God will forgive him. And that is exactly what repentance looks like. It's turning away from sin, admitting we've done wrong, and asking God for forgiveness. That's right. And you find this balance in the prophets as you read through different ones. Uh, There is such strong judgment and such personal accountability that the prophets bring and then there is an offer of repentance. You know, we talked about this with the prophetic paradigm, uh, you know, in our last episode, and just how the prophets balance the judgment with the hope. And really, the the last half of Ezekiel kind of shifts gears. In chapter three of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is called as a watchman. Say, hey, you have to warn the people. Um, if you warn them, you'll save yourself, even if they don't listen. But if you don't warn them, you're in trouble for yeah. not sounding the alarm. And what's cool about Ezekiel is like that's kind of right at the beginning of the first section. And then in Ezekiel 33, there's a, re- a reboot of mm-hmm. Ezekiel as the watchman, saying, hey, you're still being called as a watchman. Yeah. But in chapter 33, kind of the turning point of the book is that people in captivity get word that Jerusalem has indeed fallen. God did not spare the city. It has been burned. The temple has been destroyed. And that's the third wave that had happened. Uh, And so they're just hearing about it in captivity, and that really changes the attitude of the rest of the book. And one of the things God had had said to the people, they can't forget this as they get this news, Ezekiel 18.32, God said, For I have no pleasure and the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. God takes no pleasure in any of this. Um, it hurts him, but God is also just and righteous, and he's true to his word. Yeah. Like a parent you know, giving their child discipline. It's not a pleasant thing. It's a hard thing yeah. for the parent. And, and God is not up there you know, vindictively like, ah, gotcha. You know, this is hard for the Lord as well. And we see things through the prophets, kind of a glimpse of his perspective on all this. 
But again, he wants to teach his people. He wants to purify his people. And so the last half of Ezekiel begins to be filled with images of hope. Mm -hmm. Um, There are still judgment sections here, but we start to see images of the future, images of a restoration that's going to happen. And there's one picture in particular that's very famous of the Valley of Dry Bones Mm -hmm. in Ezekiel chapter 37. And I I think it's just so fascinating reading this because, again, the context of this is the Babylonian captivity. It looks like Israel as a nation is dead. But there's so many applications of this. Ezekiel 37, um, let's just read this uh, part of this. Ezekiel 37, 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, they were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And just pause right there. That's kind of the question of the captivity. Is Israel has been decimated. They've been taken into foreign land. It feels like you're in the middle of a valley of a bunch of skeletons that are long dead, totally dried out. There's no life left whatsoever. And he asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? How would you answer that question? Yeah. No. I mean, anybody <laughs> like, no, there's no chance. They're long dead. There's nothing to work with here. And I love Ezekiel's answer in the rest of verse 3. And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Mm-hmm. God knows whether these bones can live again or not. And even though to the human perspective, there may be no hope, God knows that there's hope. And so the prophecy continues, verse 4, Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and to cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And we won't read the rest of this, but it, that's exactly what happens in the prophecy. It's a vision. It's a figurative thing happening. But it's what God is doing with his people during this captivity. It looks to everyone on the outside like God has undone his promises, that there's no hope for this people. And yet what God says, I am going to resurrect my people. And that is what's going to happen with the return from captivity. And of Mm -hmm. course, with Jesus ultimately coming to give his people a new heart, um, which you can see in Ezekiel 36, there's New Testament languages that picks up on that. But God is faithful to his promises. And what he does is he brings life from the dead. And so Ezekiel's, you can see why this prophecy is so famous. Uh, is just the message of resurrection mm-hmm. as a nation, but that points forward to what, yep. to what God always does. And what he does through Jesus, he raises us from the yeah. dead. Um, it's just a beautiful template for the rest of the gospel picture. Yeah. And throughout the rest of Ezekiel, specifically chapter 40 to the end of the book, chapter 48, um, talks about a new temple that's going to come. Because in, in the process of all of Babylonians' captivity, the temple is going to be destroyed. And so and then rebuilt, but it still will not look like the one that's talked about here in Ezekiel 40 through 48. But as you get into the book of Revelation, it talks about some of the ways that that's been fulfilled in the new covenant in Jesus. And so uh, there's some really cool um, 
things going across the Testaments there mm-hmm. in Ezekiel 40 through 48 and then in the New Testament. Yes. Again, just study the prophets. Anytime yep. you learn one part of the Bible, you will learn more about the whole Bible. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. So that takes us over to the book of Jeremiah. And uh, Jeremiah, often known as the, the weeping prophet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things we don't need to forget is although there are all these deportations happening, there's actually three waves of deportation, there's still some people left over in Jerusalem and in the, in the land. And we call that the, the remnant, um, those who are left behind. And that is really where the story of Jeremiah takes place. Is What does Jeremiah say to a bunch of people whose land is getting taken, whose people, sons, daughters are getting taken away through drought and famine? What, what, what does a prophet of Yahweh say to a group of people who are having to deal with those kinds of hard things? And uh, that's what Jeremiah is about. Yeah, and so Jeremiah is going to pick up. Um, Jeremiah is really challenging chronologically wise because his stories are not in order and Jeremiah we're actually kind of backing up a little bit because Jeremiah will be prophesying some before Babylon comes in and takes them in captivity during the days of Josiah really the last good king Mm -hmm. of of Judah it was in the 13th year of his reign yes and so Jeremiah has uh, some of his book fits earlier than Ezekiel and Daniel where they're still waiting on judgment coming and there's prophecies about you guys need to repent please turn back please don't make the lord do this basically babylon is coming um and so he ties in some with some of the prophets we talked about last week um but jeremiah's timeline extends way into the captivity because jeremiah ends up again with this group that's kind of left behind he's still in jerusalem he has to witness some of the most horrifying things that you can imagine that were prophesied about back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But if you go read the book of Lamentations, uh, it's a short book right at the end of Jeremiah. It seems to be connected to and written by Jeremiah. It's all about the siege and destruction of Jerusalem. And it is hard reading. Yeah, uh, You see why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because of the things that he had to see that it's so bad during the siege that there are even people eating their own children. Mm-hmm. And again, just things that I just don't even have categories for in my experience. These are things I cannot not even imagine. And again, things that would have looked like, God, where are you in all of this? And yet there's this moment in the middle of Lamentations where he says, no, the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I'm not going to give up on God, even though these terrible things are happening to God's people. He's allowing this to happen because of their sin. Um, there's still these rays of hope uh, that shine through. And again, sometimes we quote these passages out of like the middle of Lamentations. Like, oh, it's a beautiful passage. But Great go, is thy faithfulness. Right. Yeah. It's a beautiful message. But when you look at it in context, man, it is a little beacon of hope in a, one of the darkest books mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. And it helps us to, to learn the context and to put these things in a bigger picture. And so Lamentations fits into this time frame of the, the destruction of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. the moment that the temple that Solomon built was finally destroyed. They put so much stock in the physical temple. And God's like, no, it's not about the physical building. It's about me, and you've left me. So the temple's done. 
Um, and this is where kind of um, there is another prophet that kind of fits into this yeah, time guy, frame here. Yeah, a guy named Obadiah. Um, real small little book, uh, just one chapter, uh, 21 verses long. And it's actually to one of the foreign nations, Edom, which would have been the descendants of Esau. And they apparently took advantage of Israel whenever they were down, kind of kicked them while they were down kind of, kind of thing. And God will judge them for that. And it really goes back to what God had promised Abraham all the way in Genesis 12, that I will bless those who bless you, but I will also curse those who curse you. And God, even in the midst of Israel doing what's wrong, he still punishes Edom and prophesies to them for the wrong that they've done to his children. So mm-hmm. it's a glimpse of God's keeping his promises and just being faithful to that. And I kind of always picture with Obadiah's prophecy, you know, Edom is this proud nation. They think that they're, oh, we got our homes up in the rocks. We're safe. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of like the the they're kind of a cousin nation to Israel. But it's like when one kid is getting a spanking and the other kid is like, yeah, get them. And and God's saying, no, you don't you don't get to do that. And in fact, you know, Israel's getting their spanking right now, but it's coming for you too, Edom. And the day of the Lord is near for all nations. And that's one of the things that we see both in um, Ezekiel and in Jeremiah and in books like Obadiah. You see God not just working with Israel. There are lots of sections of judgment on the other nations Mm -hmm. as you read these books. And part of that is so that Israel won't trust in the other nations. But part of that is also God is going to take care of all of the kids, so to speak. You know, there's his child, Israel, his kind of firstborn, if you will. But like the other nations, he's going to take care of them too. And God is not being partial to any one nation here, but he's punishing all of the nations that are doing wickedness and ruling over all nations. Um, And the time of captivity is a time that becomes really clear. Yeah. One of the messages in Jeremiah that really sums up these people well as God goes to contend with Israel in this um, in this book. In Jeremiah 2 and verse 12, uh, it says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Mm. And that's God saying that they keep going to the wrong well that they dug for themselves. <laughs> this is their own fault. And it shows really how much it hurts God that he, he wants to be the well. He, he wants to be the one that they go to. But they continue to forsake him for a broken cistern that can't hold any water, something they keep going back to that, that's not giving them what they need. And uh, that's just obviously echoing to me what Jesus will say to the woman of Samaria in John 4, that he has living water. Mm-hmm. And he is this well that she can, can keep going back to over and over again. Right. So many of the words of Jesus uh, just connect back to these words of the prophets. Yes. And the more familiar with the images and the statements of the prophets, it deepens the things that Jesus and the apostles say in the New Testament. Because um, they would have grown up reading this stuff right. and knowing Israel's story and knowing God's heart through the prophets. And uh, this feeling of, I'm giving you everything you need, and you still are turning aside and trusting in other things. We see God's heart being broken over and over again for his people uh, because of their rebelliousness and their unfaithfulness. One, one of the other things that is just so true of not only Jeremiah but some of the other prophets is that in the day of distress uh, that God's people are going through, 
there are going to be false prophets that rise up and they promise hope or peace or some kind of good thing that's going to happen or they try to explain a why uh, explain away excuse me why what's happening is happening and and it's not your fault. Yeah, exactly. And so Jeremiah at times is going to have to stand up against these false teachers and um, and tell people don't listen to them. And Jeremiah it falls on deaf ears in his mm-hmm. case. Yeah. So one of the important uh, passages, well, I say they're all important, but one of the famous passages and, and really uh, pivotal moments in Jeremiah is in Jeremiah 29, there's a couple things that happen here. One is that Jeremiah sends a letter to the exiles who've been taken into captivity and tells them what to expect. Um, so I just want to read this letter. I think this is really interesting. Jeremiah 29, uh, picking up in verse 4. Um, again, this is a letter from Jeremiah, but he's telling them the words of God. Uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. There's just so many interesting things about this letter. He goes on to talk about some other things. But first of all, he says, settle in because you're going to be here a long time. Mm-hmm. These false prophets are saying, oh, we're going to go back to Jerusalem. It's all going to be fine. And Jeremiah is saying, no, settle in, guys. Seventy years. And again, this is a bold prophecy. Mm-hmm. It puts a number on it. Hey, you're going to be in captivity for a full generation. So build houses, you know, uh, you know, have your children marry, settle in. Seek the welfare of the city. <laughs> yeah, because you're going to be there for a long time. And even though you're in Babylon, God's going to take care of you. But again, he zooms out and looks at the character of God. God is going to keep his promises. And he's going to bring you back to the land, to the promised land. And he's going to keep those promises to Abraham that he made that look like they failed. But you've got to seek him with all your heart. You've got to learn to love the Lord and to trust him, even when it looks like things are so upside down. And so this passage um, is so important to see the 70 years that are prophesied by Jeremiah, that there is a limited time for this captivity, but also just the character of God and and his promise to gather them from the nations. You're going to be a nation again. You're going to come back to the land. I'm going to keep my promises. And um, that's just such an important message through this particular dark, dark time in Israel's history. And Jeremiah really brings it out in this uh, passage here.
But unfortunately, like we've pointed out, Jeremiah's message is not well received by people. Um, Jeremiah is going to be um, abused and and persecuted for the preaching and teaching that he does. One of those places is in in chapter 38. And um, even the king is aware of what's happening in Jeremiah, and they they take him, this is in chapter 38 and verse 6, and cast him into the cistern of Melchijah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse. And they let Jeremiah... um, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern there was no water but only mud, and Jeremiah, Jeremiah sank into the mud. And so Jeremiah's beaten up for preaching and teaching the truth. And may that be a message to us, and an encouraging message to us, that even when everyone around us doesn't want to listen, we need to teach and preach what's right. Well, what did Jesus say? You know, blessed are the persecuted. Um, like the prophets that were before you, you know, uh, they were persecuted, but God took care of them. And he doesn't let Jeremiah die there. Um, he's rescued from the cistern later on. But what's so crazy to me is, is again, Jeremiah is with, I guess the, technically the, the remnant of the faithful is in Babylon. God's taking care of them, like Daniel and those guys. But Jeremiah is with the leftovers in Judea. And what they end up deciding to do at the end of things is, let's just go to Egypt. Which, again, is like a poetic like reversal. Like That's where they first came from in the Exodus. And now the, the last few are taken off to Egypt, and they take Jeremiah with them. Um, yeah. And, I mean, again, what a discouraging time to live in and to prophesy and just be drug all around um, and yet just still be telling people exactly what God wants them to know. Um, and then there are messages of hope that Jeremiah gives. Um, but for the most part, uh, you see why he's called the weeping prophet. And, um, and so sad to see Israel just finally turn back to Egypt. Um, and it feels, again, so final, like, all right, well, they've, they've gone all the way back to, into captivity. They started out as captives, and now they're captives again. What's going to happen in the future? Um, and so that's why these passages like Jeremiah 29 are so important. And um, other prophecies about what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that little parable that we saw in Ezekiel 18 is actually repeated in Jeremiah 31 and the Lord's responding to that little parable you know of them saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge and God will say in verse 31 behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt my covenant which they broke although I was a husband of them declares the Lord But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Um, And so God tells us very directly that there is a day coming where there's going to be this new covenant. The old covenant's going to be done away, passed away, but this new covenant's going to look much differently uh, than this old one did. And this is really spelled out for us really well in the book of Hebrews Mm -hmm. in the New Testament, specifically chapters 8, 9, and 10, do a great job in where it quotes this same section of Jeremiah to talk about the fact that we are now in the new covenant today. Yes. And so, again, the, the prophets are kind of balanced out as you read through these sections with, okay, there is still hope. God is going to renew his people, and it's going to be different in the future. There is a new covenant that's going to come, and it's not like the covenant that 
they, Israel broke, you know, there's going to be some continuity between the two, but there's going to be a new covenant. God is going to change the way that he works with them, and there's going to be forgiveness. After all they've done, God's not going to ultimately give up on his people. He's going to make a way for them to be forgiven and to continue having a relationship with him. I mean, the whole story of the Old Testament up to this point has been about the relationship between God and his people. And now he's saying, hey, there's a new phase of this relationship coming. And hang in there. You be faithful uh, through the captivity, through the total upheaval of all the world events that are going on around you. You be faithful to God. God's going to be faithful to his promises. And he's going to bring a new covenant through his son. And so these pictures of Jesus are just beautiful to see sprinkled throughout the prophets that are all going to come together in the New Testament and show that God's faithful, prove that his character has not changed, prove that he is the God who keeps his promises and uh, brings his people back to him over and over and over again. And so I, I like thinking about you know the character of God through all of this uh, and how we learn so much about God through the prophets and his covenant-keeping nature is just beautiful to see in these books of Daniel, you know, who was with the kings and how God was faithfully watching over all the nations and he's going to accomplish his will. In the book of Ezekiel, among the captives, in, even among their hard hearts, there's going to be a resurrection in the future. And in Jeremiah, where even the, him left behind with the people in, in Judea, um, God's still going to keep his promises and bring his people back to that land to uh, take care of them. Yep. Amen. It really is a beautiful picture. And so that's what we're going to get into next week, Lord willing, is talking about the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and with that Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi that that really capture this picture of God returning his people to not to full restoration, but enough for us to anticipate something more than just the restoration mm-hmm. in those books. And um, the, the temple that they will rebuild, it's okay, but it's not everything. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like that on purpose. It's anticipating some, something much greater in the New Testament. And so, Lord willing, we'll, we'll talk about that next week. Thank you guys so much uh, for listening to the podcast today. If uh, you're enjoying what you hear, please subscribe. Leave us a rating or a review. That'll help us to reach more people. Um, if you'd like to study with us, uh, obviously we're just broad overview of these studies, but if you have more questions, reach out to us, 717-585-0949, or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on other group studies or ways you can get involved, check out capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.